Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting July 10th, 2015, we talk with Kunda Dixit, editor-publisher of the Nepal Times, about his WPJ blog post, When the Mountains Shook, on the earthquakes that devastated his country, but also may be shaking up its politics for the better. We'll also point out top stories in the new summer 2015 issue and its special cover package headlined Climate's Cliff. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, dueling financial and market crises on opposite sides of the world have captured Washington's attention this week. Greece's five-year fiscal battle may be the end of that country's inclusion in the so-called Eurozone. Its economy has buckled under the weight of austerity programs forced upon it by the likes of the European Union and International Monetary Fund. The U.S. worries about Greek economic volatility spreading to other parts of Europe. The EU is America's second largest trading partner, of course, after Canada. Then there is China, where a bursting stock market bubble has raised concerns about economic instability in the People's Republic. China is struggling with debt levels three times that of the U.S., and one U.S. government China watcher tells World Policy that growing economic instability in China could even threaten the Communist Party's rigid grip on the country. The White House, which will host Chinese President Xi in September, is keeping a close eye on the situation. And still no deal in those nuclear talks with Iran. Multiple deadlines have come and gone. President Obama continues to threaten to walk away if he cannot get a deal that shuts off Iran's path to a nuclear weapon. This much seems clear. Iran and its nuclear program will be a vexing issue for the next president, whoever he or she might be. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. At 11.56 a.m. local time on Saturday, April 25th last year, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake shattered any weekend serenity in Nepal, killing 8,800 people, including at least 19 in an avalanche triggered on Mount Everest, and injuring 23,000. It was the nation's worst natural disaster since the Nepal-Bihar quake of 1934. A series of aftershocks led to a second major quake of 7.3 magnitude that left at least another 218 dead and 3,500 injured. The good news, experts said, was that it could have been worse. The good news, experts said, was that it could have been worse. The bad news beyond the devastation that did take place was that the experts had been warning of such seismic disaster for 10 years. But preparations were slow and inadequate because of government weakness, political instability, and partisan conflict. The hope now is that this natural disaster can have a cathartic and unifying effect, as happened in conflict crippled Sri Lanka and Indonesia's Aceh province after the Indian Ocean tsunami 10 years ago. 
So says Nepal Times editor and publisher Kunda Dixit in a World Policy Journal blog post headlined When the Mountains Shook and subsequent stories for his own publication. We talked about them recently for this podcast. Kunda Dixit, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thanks, David. Talk about some of the factors that kept the deaths and damage from being even more extensive. Well, first of all, I think uh, it was because it was uh, only 7.8 magnitude. If there had been um, 8.2 or 8.5, like previous earthquakes, it, was, it would have been devastating, not just for Nepal, but neighboring India and China as well. So that was the first factor. The second, it happened on a Saturday. So um, most schools were closed. Um, and given that 25,000 classrooms were completely destroyed, our conservative estimate is that 75,000 children would have been killed if, uh, if the schools had been open that day. So uh, that was the other reason. And I think uh, the fact that it wasn't at night, because a lot of the residences came down, and if it was at night, people would have been at home. So uh, these things kept the death toll down and uh, meant that uh, our phone lines worked, the electricity was back, the airport was not destroyed, the highways were open. So in a sense, we got off quite lightly uh, compared to what um, seismologists had been warning about. Well, as you note, experts said geological cycles suggested an even stronger quake, but the fact that those in April and May fell short is not totally good news, I gather, uh, because yeah. it suggests that underground strains have not been fully released. What does that mean for expectations of quakes to come? Yeah, well, we've been speaking to some uh, experts, seismologists. Uh, they've been here giving lectures, and what they say is uh, a bit frightening for us who live here. Because, first of all, um, the strain was not totally released, which means that the tectonic elasticity of the rocks underneath, about 10 kilometers or more beneath us, has not been fully released. And the area south of Kathmandu has been squeezed. And the energy has to be released somehow. And it could be with, a, with a, another earthquake, or it could be with uh, more safely with what they call creep. The seismologists say that there are, they see signs of creep, which is a good sign. Uh, but then there's this whole area of western Nepal, right up to the Indian border, along the mountains, which hasn't seen an eighth magnitude and above earthquake now for nearly 800 years. So there's a huge seismic gap and a lot of tectonic tension there building up. And, and a major 8.5 earthquake in western Nepal would would really be catastrophic, not just for us, but the whole of northern India. And uh, Roger Billham, one of the seismologists uh, who was lecturing here, has said that it could conceivably be one of the worst natural disasters ever in human history, with, with millions killed. And, and so that, that's truly frightening. And I think something of that magnitude in western Nepal, northern India, is something that you don't want to think about. Meanwhile, uh, you wrote the damage left by the quakes that did happen uh, was likely to be compounded by monsoon season, starting just about now. What's expected or already seen? Yeah, well, the monsoon arrived a week late, so it's already here, but uh, it's been a bit uh, weak, uh, not as uh, vigorous as monsoons usually are, which is a, which is a blessing in disguise. Uh, because the, the, the mountain slopes in central Nepal are, are very unstable. There are uh, rock slides and landslides happening even without the rains. So uh, people are predicting that there will be massive slope failures and, and, uh, 
and mountain slides all along this area north of Kathmandu. Uh, some of these slides have already started happening. Last night, um, six soldiers guarding a base uh, at a hydropower plant uh, northeast of Kathmandu were injured when there was a, there was a rock slide. This is uh, worrying in, in more senses than one. First of all, there are many villages that are in the path of, of these landslides which have not been relocated yet. And then uh, when the rains come, the, the landslides will also block highways, which means that the relief supplies that are supposed to go to some of the more remote areas will, will be blocked. Uh, and the helicopters can't fly either because of the, of the monsoon clouds. So we're all waiting for the rains to really set in and, and for some more bad news, I'm afraid. Overall, how do you rate rescue, recovery, and reconstruction efforts so far? Where have they been best and worst? Well, reconstruction hasn't really started yet. I think we're still, in a lot of cases, we are, we've just passed the search and rescue into relief. But I think we might have to go back to search and rescue when the landslides begin, you know, and hopefully it won't be very serious. The relief operations, I think, uh, were slow to uh, get underway. That's because, you know, there was, the government was very lethargic and perhaps a bit shocked by, by what had happened. So I think once it uh, got cranked up, um, it has been working not at optimum, but I think uh, for, a, for a country and the kind of government we had, I think I'm uh, actually I'm quite surprised that it has worked as well as it has. Remind us of the political environment that prevented Nepal from preparing better for the quakes that were predicted. Beginning with a civil war, many may not remember. Well, the, the war lasted from 1996 to 2006. It was, uh, you know, 17,000 people were killed. Uh, it, it devastated the country. It, uh, it brutalized the people. And since then, we haven't really had a peace dividend because there's been so much political instability and, and power struggle among the various political parties since the war ended that for the last eight years, uh, we haven't really gotten around to uh, things like development, health, education, and let alone earthquake preparedness. I mean, this earthquake was not a surprise. Everyone knew it was coming. It's just that we were not prepared because we had so many political distractions. Even more fundamentally, you write, there was a huge lay-in writing a new constitution and a, a lack of local elections around the country. Exactly. We haven't had local elections now for 17 years, uh, which has meant that there's been a severe lack of accountability and transparency in the local distribution of, of relief aid. So that is directly linked to politics. But, however, we've had national elections. And so we have an elected government and a coalition government in place at the moment. But one last bit of the peace process that started in 2006 has been the writing of a new constitution. And that has been stuck now for five or six years because the political parties cannot agree on, a, on, on uh, some major points of uh, contention like uh, whether or not Nepal should be federal state and, and how many federal units there should be. So uh, this had been deadlocked for a long time. And we had all hoped that somehow the earthquake would shake things up. And it looks like it has, uh, because now there is some forward movement on the Constitution. And, uh, and uh, they've come to some kind of a compromise where we might actually have a new Constitution in the, in the coming month. Where have there been examples of a natural disaster having cathartic effects? Well, this precisely this one. Uh, I think... The political parties, and especially some of the uh, leadership of the uh, two 
political parties in the coalition government, uh, completely disappeared and vanished after the earthquake. So there was tremendous public disillusionment with them. Where are you in the time of need? Why do we elect you if you can't even you know, come to our, our, our aid, that sort of thing. And when they did finally appear, they made very token appearances in, in, in you know, these uh, yellow helmets, and, and it looked like they were just photo opportunities. So uh, the reputation and the prestige of some of these political leaders had really sunk really, really low uh, after the earthquake, and they had to do something to, to redeem themselves. And uh, I think that was part of, that was one factor that, that pressurized them to come up with this, uh, with this compromise on the Constitution. So what were the terms of the compromise and, and what you saw as really the underlying issues at stake? Well, what they did was basically the two contentious issues um, on form of government and uh, the kind of uh, federalism we should have, they've postponed that. So uh, basically they came to a compromise by, uh, by letting some other future commission decide on those on those two matters, and that they would pass the constitution for now without those contentious issues. So, so we might have a constitution, but it will not really resolve some of the fundamental uh, disagreements within it. But still, it's a forward movement, and I think it comes from the fact that the political parties and especially some of the leadership really had to rescue uh, their own reputation. Well, you say the compromise does not hold out as much promise as you had hoped for a united Nepal reconstructing Mm -hmm. itself now and and better preparing for disasters to come. One example I found very interesting was the politics preventing perhaps the most qualified man in the country from hitting a new federal reconstruction authority, a former prime minister, no less. Tell us about Babu Ram Batari's qualifications and political disqualification. Well, you know, I mean, he's a Ph.D. in urban planning. So, I mean, there couldn't be anyone more qualified than that. He's been prime minister, he's been finance minister, and he's a former uh, ideologue of the Maoist party that that fought this war. And so he was basically underground for for 10 years. Uh, He's very ideologically driven. He really believes in uh, in, in communism. And when he was prime minister, he did try to get things done in terms of urban planning for Kathmandu, which, as you know, is a very chaotic city. So there was a lot of hope, even among the ruling parties, that, that somehow Dr. Butterai would come to the rescue, that he would, that he would be able to, um, uh, you know, really get this reconstruction agency going. And I think there was a lot of apprehension among uh, the ruling coalition that Butterai might make political capital uh, out of being the CEO of this, of this agency. Uh, and they really wanted to prevent him from being successful. Uh, and they and they managed it because and now the um, the uh, government has decided that uh, the reconstruction agency will be headed by the prime minister, and uh, unfortunately that doesn't bode very well because uh, prime minister is uh, more than 80 years old, he's ailing, he's uh, you know he's got fading memory, so he's not the most dynamic man that could head it. Butterai's Maoist connection is not even a plus in Mao's homeland. Tell us about the Chinese reaction to uh, the Maoist rebellion. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's really in the past now. But uh, when the war started, uh, these were people, uh, this, the Nepali communists uh, who believed in Maoism, uh, felt that Mao was a moderate, that he actually abandoned a, a revolution in his own country, in mainland China, 
uh, you know, going into revisionism. So this is how hardline our Maoists were. So the Chinese were a bit embarrassed that uh, someone they thought had, uh, you know, embalmed and put into a mausoleum, his ideology was alive and kicking in their backyard. So they were a bit embarrassed by Maoism. And, and in fact, the Chinese uh, media, you know, Xinhua and uh, Chinese TV and radio, they never called Nepal's Maoists uh, Maoists. They called them anti-government rebels throughout the whole conflict. So the Chinese, there wasn't really any support for Nepal's Maoists uh, from China. Um, uh, and if there was any support, it was actually from India because uh, Baburam Bhattrai and many of these other uh, Maoist leaders actually had sanctuary uh, on the outskirts of Delhi for eight of those ten years that, that, that they fought the war. In a larger sense, what are the main influences now on Nepal from giant neighbors, China and India? China and India, you know, are rivals, uh, regional rivals. They, they, they compete for uh, influence around the world, for natural resources. But on the, along the Himalayan arc, you know, where Nepal is situated, uh, they're not really competing that much. And in fact, both countries uh, seem to want to keep the Himalayas uh, in deep freeze, as it were, because they have other worries. I mean, these are both countries with more than 1.2 billion people. That they have to create employment, they have to create growth, they have to have investment. Um, so, and then China has its own worry in the East China Sea, as the tensions with uh, Japan. Uh, India, uh, you know, has got a volatile neighborhood to deal with and extremism of all kinds. So they really don't want to have tension along the mountains. And so on, on Nepal, I think uh, India and China actually have a broad agreement that they, they would want stability here and not, uh, not have some kind of a volatile powder keg. And, and especially after Prime Minister Narendra Modi came to power in India, and because of his very close ties with the Chinese leadership, I think that the kind of a rapprochement between China and India vis-a-vis -vis Nepal has actually grown. And during um, Prime Minister Modi's visit to China earlier this month, um, they actually discussed Nepal and seemed to have agreed that, you know, Nepal should now have a constitution as soon as possible and that it should, be, it should go into stability. And they also discussed uh, how they could help Nepal jointly uh, in the earthquake relief. And in fact, during the first weeks of the, after the earthquake, both the Chinese Air Force and the Indian Air Force were in Nepal with helicopters. Indian helicopters were lifting Chinese rescue workers uh, and vice versa. So Nepal actually became a, a proving ground for this theory that India and China are now working very closely together. As we speak, Nepal is preparing for a big conference of donors uh, to reconstruction or for reconstruction. What is Nepal hoping for? Well, it's hoping that uh, it will get help for the reconstruction effort. Uh, it, it, you know, the scale of this disaster is really mind-boggling. I mean, you're talking about 700 to 800,000 homes and offices and, um, and hospitals and schools destroyed. So there's tremendous amount of reconstruction required. Uh, it, I don't think we can meet that with our current budget. The National Planning Commission of Nepal has estimated that we need about $7 billion in, in, in aid, most of it for reconstruction. But that, that's, uh, that's actually underestimating it because the damage is actually much, much more than that. So I think uh, we, would, we would want from uh, the international community, the World Bank and the others, 
to help us meet some of the uh, some of the resource uh, crunch that is there for reconstruction. We'd want it at either soft loans or grants as much as possible. They'd also probably want some of Nepal's um, three or four billion dollars in external debt to be either cancelled or rescheduled. I think overall, um, the Nepal government has prepared a plan uh, where they want most of this help to be going, and they'll be presenting it to donors uh, on Thursday. Kunda Dixit, thank you, and good luck. Thank you, David. Kunda Dixit is editor-publisher of the Nepal Times and author of the WPJ blog post, When the Mountains Shook, about the recent earthquakes that crippled his country. Featured in the summer 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, cover headline, Climate's Cliff, you'll find stories about threats to the environment from Nicaragua to the Arctic, about the pollution, corruption, and politics behind China's smothering skies, and a conversation with Nobel Prize winner Hiro Amano about the cool light of LEDs that he helped develop and their larger potential impact on energy, environment, and society. Plus, tune in to next week's podcast as we talk with Israeli scientist David Andelman about the nuclear alternative to fossil fuels. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, not the scientist whose name is the same, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>